I love celebrating this time of the year with this church family that I love so dearly. And I've looked forward to our Advent series, which we are going to continue in our uh, series that we're doing as a church in the book of First Peter. So please turn with me to First Peter chapter 2. At the center of Christmas is not decorations or presents or even family and the traditions we love. At the center of Christmas is a person. And 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 25, form, in fact, the heart of Peter's teaching about Christ in this entire letter, which is appropriate for us to study as Christmas approaches. So we will devote three Sundays to this passage, today focusing on verses 22 and 23. I'll begin reading in verse 21, and we'll read through verse 25, even though our sermon is verses 22 and 23. This is God's holy and authoritative word. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Our sermon title is Christ Has Come, the Sinless Savior. May God bless the preaching of his word. We're only a couple months off from the Olympics, again, you may have realized, uh, again, back-to-back -back years because the 2020 Summer Olympics were held in 2021. Few things compare to watching a flawless performance. We marvel at the glory of perfection. It was in 1976 in Montreal that Romanian athlete Nadia Kamenici became the first gymnast in Olympic history to be awarded a perfect score. Um, I'm also aware in preparation for the Winter Olympics in 2018, Sean White scored a perfect 100 in the snowboard halfpipe. How did he do it, you may ask? I'll tell you. He threw a frontside double cork 1440 Cab, double cork, 1080, huge frontside, 540, double McTwist, 1260, and then you won't believe what he ended with, frontside, double cork, 1260, nailed it. White was a gold medalist in 2006 and 2010, Olympic champion, went on in 2018 to win gold on his final run. Few things compare to a flawless performance. In our text, Peter describes the entire life of Christ as one of absolute moral perfection. 
He was flawless. He committed no sin. And the wonder of Christmas, the miracle of Christmas, cannot be understood or celebrated apart from this truth. The one who is born of the Virgin Mary is the sinless Savior of the world. And today we pause and consider what it means that Christ committed no sin. Verse 22 and in 23 as well. The perfect life. My oldest son turns 18 later this month. And from the time that he was a baby, I have been tucking in any kids who have been young enough to tuck in and to sing the gospel song to. So they reach a certain age. It's not like Buddy the Elf. You know, they reach a certain age. You can't tuck them in at that point anymore and have it not be super awkward. But I've realized what this means that I've been singing the gospel song. I've sung it a few thousand times because it's been pretty much every night for the past 18 years that I have sung the gospel song. Admittedly, sometimes I've done it with a very fast tempo because the kids just need to get to bed and be quiet. So there's like a holy God in love became perfect man to bear my, it actually doesn't settle them down at all. It sounds like we've entered a horse race or something. Um, these days I only have one child I continue that practice with because my youngest, Aggie, is now eight years old. We have six kids. My youngest is eight years old now, but she still asks every night to be tucked in and for holy God to be sung to her. The first line of that gospel song, which I have sung and I have taken time to use it to teach and explain the gospel to my children, the first line of that gospel song is the whole meaning of Christmas. Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. The perfect man. He committed no sin. This entire passage that we're looking at this Advent season leans heavily on the prophecy of Isaiah 53, which was made some 700 years before Christ came. Peter, you remember, already said in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, that the prophets of old prophesied about the grace that would come to us in Christ. That includes the prophet Isaiah, whom Peter had been influenced by in what he shares here. Isaiah 53, verse 9, speaking of the one who was to come, says he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And now Peter arrives and says the prophecy from of old is fulfilled in Christ. Grace has come. The Savior has come. He committed no sin is an astonishing claim to make of any man who walks this earth. 1 Kings 8.46 says, There is no one who does not sin. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. None of us can say that we have committed no sin. There's a, a Santa Claus mug. I know some of you have a strict anti-Santa policy in your home. That's okay. God loves Scrooges too. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a Santa mug. There's a picture of Santa on it. On the top it says, you're all naughty. 
And then at the bottom, it says Romans 3.10. None is righteous, no, not one. That's the biblical testimony. All have sinned. And we kid ourselves if we think we fall outside of that all. Who of us can say that we have committed no sin? It could not be said until this one moment, the moment that we celebrate in a heightened way this time of the year, this child who has come. In 1 John 3, verse 5, it says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin, which is the only way he could take away sin. The angel said to Mary, The child to be born will be called holy. Hebrews 4.15 says that in Christ we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And in Hebrews 7.26 it says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Peter has already described Jesus in chapter 1, verse 19, as a lamb without blemish or spot. He is the sinless Savior. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Hail the spotless Lamb. Hail the Holy Child. Hail the unstained High Priest. For three decades, as he walked this earth, there was not a single sin in his thoughts, in his words, or in his deeds. There was nothing he did that he should not have done, and there was nothing that he failed to do that ought to have been done. He always honored his parents. He always spoke the truth. He never lusted or experienced sinful anger. He never grew impatient. And it's not simply that he avoided certain things, but that he positively loved God the Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that he perfectly loved others throughout the course of his life. Our passage highlights some of the specific ways his moral perfection was demonstrated. First, in avoiding sins of speech. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. This is the verbal aspect of the sinless life of Christ, which is one of the most difficult aspects of godly living, as each one of us can testify to. He did not tell lies. He did not deceive others. He never spoke a careless word. He didn't post comments on social media that he later regretted. He spoke words full of truth and grace. And we also see, second, that he endured great mistreatment with perfect patience and love. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Remarkable. He did not respond to his enemies with revenge or with retaliation. 
Jesus experienced reviling from the Sanhedrin, mockery by the Roman guards, betrayal from his disciples, and yet he loved perfectly his enemies and his friends who failed him. He stood before the earthly unjust governor Pilate and did not revile in return. He was beaten. He was flogged. But he did not threaten. He did not hit back. He did not fight fire with fire. He was meek and loving and patient as he endured injustice and suffering. And then third, the end of verse 23 says he continued entrusting himself to a faithful God. So not only did he avoid sin, he trusted the Father perfectly. He, what, what does that mean? He refused to doubt the goodness of God in the midst of poverty, in the midst of injustice, in the midst of slander and hardship. He entrusted his vindication to his Father in heaven. This is the whole of his life. And it occurred to me as I was reflecting on this glorious life, Peter is able to share this truth, this statement of the, of the truth of the, the sinless life of Christ, that he committed no sin, not simply as an abstract theological truth. Peter is sharing this as what he observed in this man in the three years he spent ministering with him and living closely with him day after day. Not once did Jesus respond with sinful anger toward his dense disciples. Not once did he sin in word or deed. And Peter saw it with his own eyes. The glory of the perfect life. Michael Reeves has written one of my favorite descriptions of the perfect life of Christ. Uh, this is in his book, Rejoicing in Christ. In fact, it was some time ago, we took time in one of our um, small group meetings as pastors and wives to share what's one uh, part of a book that has helped you to treasure Christ more. And what I'm gonna share with you are the paragraphs that I shared that evening with the pastors and wives in, in that small group meeting. This is, it's a longer quote. It's from his book, Rejoicing in Christ. Michael Reeves says this. Speaking of Christ, what a life. Christians often use a negative, chilly word to describe Christ's life. It was sinless. That tells us what he was not. He was not selfish, cruel, abusive, twisted, petty, or proud. Now, when opened out like that, we can see that to be sinless is beautiful, dynamic, and attractive. The trouble is, we often leave the word closed and then it reinforces all our stereotypes of what holy people are like. Bloodless, bland, dreamy, delicate, and so spiritual it looks painful. But what was he like? Anything but boring and anemic. He was a man towering with charisma, running over with life. Health and healing, loaves and fishes all abound in his presence. So compelling did people find him that crowds thronged round him. Men, women, children, sick and mad, rich and poor, they found him so magnetic, some wanted to touch his clothes. Kinder than summer, 
He befriended the rejects and gave hope to the hopeless. The dirty and despised found they mattered to him. His closest friends found that as the Son of Man came eating and drinking, being with him was like being with a bridegroom at a wedding. Generous and genial, firm and resolute, he was always surprising, loving but not sloppy. His insight unsettled unsettled people and his kindness won them. Indeed, he was a man of extraordinary and extraordinarily appealing contrast. You simply couldn't make him up, for you'd make him one or the other. He was red-blooded and human, but not rough. Pure, but never dull. Serious with sunbeams of wit. Sharper than glass. He out-argued all comers, but never for the sake of the wind. He knew no failings in himself, yet was transparently humble. He made the grandest claims for himself, yet without a whiff of pomposity. He ransacked the temple, spoke of hellfire, called Herod a fox. The Pharisees pimped up corpses. And yet never do you doubt his love as you read his life. With a huge heart, he hated evil and felt for the needy. He loved God and he loved people. You look at him and you have to say, here is a man truly alive unwithered in any way, far more vital and vigorous, far more full and complete, far more human than any other. What a description of the life of our Savior. He committed no sin. He committed no sin is packed with glory and beauty. Here is a man truly alive. Here is a man fit to be our savior. Here is a man who lived the life that we could not live and died that we might live forever. What a savior we have in Christ. And it is the beauty of this sinless life that changes our lives. That, that leads us, what's the effect his sinless life has? It leads us to adore him and it leads us to follow him. First, we adore him. How can we look upon the perfect life of Christ with anything other than wonder and adoration? Come and adore him. Fall on your knees and worship him. My Lord and my God. This Advent season, know this, this is good news. God can replace your weariness with wonder and joy. We sing, a weary world rejoices. And it has occurred to me that some of us are more weary after these past two years than you have perhaps ever been before. The ultimate source of weariness is the problem of sin, sin in this world and sin in our lives. But now a weary world rejoices because of Christ our Savior. We marvel today, we come and adore him, marveling at the great difference between Jesus Christ and ourselves. Listen, you should know this about me. I cannot live a life without sin. I cannot live a day without sin, and neither can you. Scripture affirms the sinfulness of all humanity and our daily lives testify to that truth. For some of us, the car ride on the way here testifies to that truth. 
that we are sinners all. I need a savior. I need a perfect man to live a perfect life and die in my place. His name is Jesus. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The demand has always been not just for a lamb, but for a spotless lamb, a spotless sacrifice. The need that we've had has always been for a perfect righteousness. How do we achieve that? We can't. He achieved it for us. Every act of obedience throughout his life was for us. The sinless Christ is the only way he could ever be our Savior. Only one man knew no sin. Only one man lived as our law-keeping representative. Only one man is the second Adam. Only one man secures our salvation. We adore him. We adore and worship the King of kings who lived a perfect life and died in our place. We adore him and we follow him. We follow him. Christ will not be adored only to not be followed by those who claim to know him and follow him. To be a Christian means that we adore Christ and that we have had our lives transformed by him such that we are following in his footsteps. In all his sinless life, verse 21 says, he lived as our example. That word example in the original, hypogrammon, is used to refer to a pattern of letters of the alphabet that children would trace when they were learning to write. It's, it's the copy. It is the exact model. He left us a pattern to follow in his footsteps. Peter's original recipients were, like Christ, receiving slander, false accusations, and reviling. We see a lot of that in the world today, and I'm sure you have received it as well. When we are treated unjustly is when we are most likely to retaliate, to speak against others, to make threats, to insult those who insult us, to abandon the way of the cross. But this is where the Christian is different. Jesus has left us an example to follow in his footsteps, and it is glorious and it is life-changing. The message we proclaim this Christmas is that Christianity really does have something to offer the world. We are bringing the most relevant and only essential message to the world around us. We proclaim the message of salvation. We proclaim what God has done for sinners. And we offer a Savior who not only rescues us from the judgment we deserve, but also really truly changes our lives. Really guides us in how to live a life of freedom and joy and hope and victory, even when life is really hard and we are mistreated and sorrows surround us. That's the difference Christ makes. Christ has left an example. 
and by the power of his example and by the power of his spirit within us, it means that we too can honor God. No, not sinlessly so, but increasingly so. We can honor God in our speech. We too can love our enemies and those who have mistreated us, even when it seems impossible. We too can be gracious in all our relationships. We too can entrust ourselves to God. Oh, what a, what a beautiful goal for each one of us to have it be said that we are continuing to entrust ourselves to God, even in the midst of the present hardships we face. How do we do that? How, do you, how, how can we continue entrusting ourselves to God? Because we know the Lord. Because we know the Lord is with us and we know he is for us. We know that there will be an end to all sorrow and injustice. We know the good news of great joy. We know the one who lived a perfect life, who defeated death, who came as a child to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found and will one day come again in glory. We know the great reckoning is coming when God will right every wrong and we will dwell with him forever. We know the good news of Christmas. We know the gospel story and therefore we press on to adore him, to follow his example. This Christmas we fix our eyes on Christ. Come and adore him. Come and follow in his footsteps. I want to invite the band forward as I close. There's an old story that says uh, Christians invented the candy cane. It's almost certainly not true, but it makes for good Facebook content. And um, the, story, the story is this, that uh, a candy maker in India wanted to create a candy that would be a witness to the gospel so he created uh, the Christmas candy cane with symbols from the gospel story. Um, the pure white symbolizing the sinless life of Christ. The red stripes symbolizing the blood he shed. The shape of uh, a J being the name of Jesus or a staff for the good shepherd who rescues the lost. So it's unlikely that Christians invented the candy cane, but we sure have packed it with meaning, plundering the Egyptians once again. You know, I was like, I, I can go all day. With, you know, and, and the candy is hard because Christ is our rock. And it stains your tongue as a reminder of the stain of sin. And it's peppermint because they served mint at the spring Passover feast. And it's a candy and not a toy because we partake of Christ by faith and he dwells within us through our union with him. And just as the nations will one day be broken to pieces when Christ returns to rule with a rod of iron, so the candy cane, when crushed to pieces, kids, symbolizes the return of Christ and the consummation of all things. I just imagine, you know, the candy maker in India just snapped at that point. I don't know, Christians are crazy. We're like, who needs a Bible when we have a candy cane to communicate the whole history of redemption and, and the whole counsel of God? Friends, this, this Christmas, nothing is more important than this. Let us together praise God for our great Savior. 
pure, white, sinless life of Christ, the blood he shed for us, only he achieved the perfect score. Only he lived the perfect life so that we in all of our sin might look to him for forgiveness, for life, for joy. Come and adore him, follow him, live for him, trust in him. This is the glory of our Savior, King of heaven, now the friend of sinners, humble servant in the Father's hands, filled with power and the Holy Spirit, filled with mercy for the broken man. Are you broken? He has mercy for you. Yes, he walked my road and he felt my pain, joys and sorrows that I know so well. And here it is, yet his righteous steps give me hope again. You hopeless? Here's what gives us hope. The righteous steps of Christ our Savior has given us hope again. I will follow my Emmanuel. Yes, every righteous step he took, every act of obedience gives us hope now and forever. Yes, we will follow him. Yes, we will give him all the glory this Christmas. Amen. Let's sing together.